Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I'd been working in the hospital as a chaplain and was on a 24-hour on-call shift. I was exhausted and was praying to go home. Five minutes and I would be going home and my pager went off. A lady had been found on the street with no identification. So I went, I met with her and prayed for her and as I was leaving, she extended her hand and I took it, I sat down next to her and she fell asleep. And shortly thereafter, I drifted to sleep. I felt a tap on my shoulder a couple of hours into our sleep, and it was the medical director of the hospital. Laying next to me was his mother. Fast forward six months, our Leah, our oldest, falls ill. We thought it was a cold. She was diagnosed at the time with what they thought was scarlet fever into her first bout of antibiotics, she became lethargic. We went back to the clinic and they really didn't know what to do, so they gave her some more antibiotics. And as we went up the hill to fill the prescription, we ran into the medical doctor of the, of the emergency room. He immediately said, take off her shoes. I want to see her feet. We thought it odd, but we took her shoes off and he said, I'm sure she has Kawasaki disease. He took her into the emergency room, they tested her, and sure enough, they were able to administer IVIG, which immediately got her on the right path. He felt gracious that I had taken the time to sit with his mother, and I felt gracious that he had taken the time to look at Leia's feet. Grace a true gift undeserved. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us would rather strike back at somebody who has hurt us rather than extend to them grace. We'd like to even the score, settle the score. Like the young soldier serving overseas in the U.S. Army. He was there, as the story that Max Lucado writes in one of his books on Grace tells, in love with his beloved back home. Those years ago, exchanging letters and had her picture there meant everything to him. It was part of what kept him hopeful and alive for the day that he would get home. And then one day he gets a Dear John letter. Oh, my goodness, the pain. It's over. There's someone else. In fact, we're getting married. In fact, that picture you have of me, I love that picture. Would you send it back? I'd like to use that in the announcement, in the paper. Can you imagine? Well, he was utterly heartbroken, so much so he couldn't hide it from the other guys. They listened to what had happened, and they put their heads together, and they said, this is what we do, and so they did it. 
They all gave him, all of them, pictures of their girlfriends and their sisters. And they put it all in one big envelope. He sent them to her with a simple note that said, I am so sorry for the life of me. I can't remember who, which one you are. Would you please tell me? <laughs> Keep the one that's you and send the rest back. Now, I laughed and laughed at that story until I thought, you know, I really shouldn't be laughing at this this much because aren't we supposed to extend grace? Well, that's what the teaching of Jesus tells us today. It's one of those situations and circumstances where somebody comes with a question. In this case, it's Peter. He comes to Jesus with a question. Jesus, how often do I have to forgive? Now, it seems that there was fairly common knowledge, conventional wisdom that said at least three times. So Peter doubled that and added one, and the perfect number seven emerged up to seven times. And Jesus says, Peter, let me tell you a story. A story about a king who forgave far more than that. And that's where we turn today in Matthew's gospel, the 18th chapter. Matthew 18 begins in verse 21 with these words. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. In other versions, 10,000 talents. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. Cancel the debt and let him go. Now, the hearers of Jesus' story would have started snickering right away because there is no way, no way one person could owe that much money. Utterly impossible was an absurdly high, ludicrously high debt. In fact, I read to you the words of New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg commenting on the size of this man's debt. Listen to what Blomberg says. 10,000 talents would have been an enormous debt on the borderline of what the ancient mindset could have conceived. Estimates in modern cur currency range from several million to one trillion dollars. The talent was the highest known denomination of currency in the ancient Roman Empire, and 10,000 was the highest number for which the Greek language had a particular word, myrios or myriad in our language. In other words, Jesus chose the highest possible debt that could be conceived, and he said that's how much he owed. In fact, one scholar says that amount of debt that he had was more than the entire coinage in the entire land of Egypt. That's how much he owed. So as Jesus starts out talking, he says, there was a man who owned 10,000 talents. His listeners are like, yeah, right. What is he, the U.S. government? Nobody can owe that much money. It's impossible, <laughs> utterly impossible. 
And so they would have laughed and snickered and thought, there is no way this man can get out of this. Now, what are you going to do if you're the man? If you're the man, you've got to try something. You know you owe what you can never repay. So he's going to try. He's going to do anything, everything he can to try to somehow deal with the debt. So he cast himself, cast himself upon the mercy of the king, and he says, please, just give me time. Just give me time, and I will repay absolutely every penny I owe. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now just think. Take some perspective on this. The size of debt he could not deal with. So to get a bit of a feel for that, just consider how big that amount of money might be. It was helpful to me to read a letter to the editor to the New York Times. Somebody trying to sort through the U.S. debt and trying to understand exactly how much money a trillion dollars was. Well, consider this. If we were to transfer that from currency into time, we would say that a thousand seconds is about 17 minutes. A million seconds is about 12 days. A billion seconds is about 32 years. A trillion seconds is about 32,710 years. And the man is saying, just give me some time. I'll pay you back. I'll take care of the debt. I'll work it off. I'll do whatever I need to do, but I will pay you what I owe you. The letter writer to the New York Times went on to say, I wanted to know how many of my friends had a concept of what a trillion was because I didn't know what it was until I started this process. And writes, was I alone in not knowing how long a trillion seconds was? I asked some of my neighbors what they would say if they were told they could have $1 trillion in $1 bills, so long as they agreed to put their initials on each bill. Their answers were all the same. No, they said. When I asked why, they said, almost without exception, because it would take me the rest of my life. And they're exactly right. In fact, you could change that from $1 bills to 20s to 50s to 100s, and they would still be spending the rest of their lives trying to initial each one of those bills, which is exactly what the servant is saying. Just give me time. Give me some time. I'll work it off. I'll pay it off. I'll take care of the debt. Impossible. But then you saw what happened. We read it right there. The king says to him, as he watches him groveling before him, he says, the master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's just too easy. That's just too soft. 
Are you telling me that just in one fell swoop, it's like done? Go. You can, you can go home. Lay your head on the pillow tonight and don't give this a second thought. Stunning. I listened to a book a few months, a year or so ago, a book called Ghost of the Innocent Man, written by Benjamin Rockland. It's a deeply disturbing but also deeply heartening book. It's the story of a man who was falsely accused of a heinous crime. They were convinced he was the man. He went to prison, went to prison basically for life. But he continued to protest his innocence, continued to write letters, continued to plea. And when DNA became available as a legal tool, others took up his cause, ultimately setting him free. In the book, however, other stories of a similar vein, a similar nature are told. One is told of a man who was put in prison again for two, two and a half decades in prison for a crime he did not commit, helped placed in prison by a woman who sincerely but erroneously testified against him. Years and years, decades in prison, his life destroyed over sitting in a prison cell. And then DNA, and then the Innocence Project, and then he's set free. When he was set free, the woman who had, yes, sincerely, but in error, helped to convict him and to place him in prison, said, I, I, I want to apologize to him. Would you please see if he would be willing to talk to me? So through the authorities, the communication was made, and he agreed. A time and a place was set up at a church. He arrived at the church in advance with those who were with him. He was sitting there looking out the window when he saw the car pull up, the woman and those with her get out. She came into the room. When she came into the room, she fell sobbing to her knees trying to choke out the words in the midst of body-racking sobs. If I said to you, I am sorry every day for the rest of my life, it would not be sufficient to tell you how deeply sorry I am for what I did. And the man looked at her, and he said, You don't need to do that. I forgave you a long time ago. Stunning. So simple. The debt is canceled. The sin is forgiven. You are set free. Now the question is, how does one respond to that? How do you receive that news? What do you do about that? Laugh, shout, celebrate and dance. Hug the life out of the person who has just set you free. Race out into the larger world of life and throw grace and mercy on every last person you can find. That's how you respond. 
saturating the world with grace. Well, maybe we'd better listen to Jesus. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. He waltzes out of the master's presence, lighter than air, until he sees Joe Blow. Didn't he? I think I loaned him some money. He's never paid me back. He goes over and tells him, grabs him around the throat, pay me what you owe me. And that servant speaks precisely the same words that he himself spoke five minutes ago in the presence of the king. Just, just give me a chance. Just give me some time. I'll pay you back everything. I'll pay you back. Only in this case, that's possible. Give him a little time. He will pay you back. In fact, listen to these words drawn from the pen of William Barclay, writing about the comparison in the debts. The biblical scholar, writes Barclay, A.R.S. Kennedy, drew this vivid picture to contrast the debts. Suppose they were paid in small coins. He suggested sixpences. We might think in terms of five-pence pennies, pieces, or dimes. The hundred denarii debt could be carried in one pocket. One pocket. That's the debt I owe. The 10,000-talent debt would take an army of about 8,600 carriers to carry it, each carrying a sack of coins 60 pounds in weight, and they would form at a distance of a yard apart a line five miles long. That's the comparison of the two debts. The contrast between the debts is staggering. The point is that nothing that others can do to us in any way can compare with what we have done to God. And if God has forgiven us the debt we owe to Him, we must forgive our neighbors the debt they owe to us. Nothing that we have to forgive can even faintly or remotely compare with what we have been forgiven just give me some time I've got some change on the dresser back home let me go get it pay me what you owe me let you do this to me staggering makes me think of that scene two, three years ago, the city of Jerusalem. We visited that day the place called Calvary. You must understand that so many of those sites in the Holy Land now have churches over them. 
So we entered a church. But you could see the stones, the outcropping of Calvary. And not that many paces over there, you could see and even enter the tomb, the garden tomb. There were people everywhere. Hordes of people, scads of people, everybody trying to see. There were men who worked there managing the crowds, one in particular that day. Managing the crowds, get back in line, stand back. You shouldn't be pushing. Get over there. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. You're tr- Isn't that Calvary right there? Get in line and stop pushing. Isn't that, isn't that Calvary? If I tell you again, I'm, sir, isn't that Calvary? Calvary, where the grace of God inundated the world. And you're worried that they're getting out of line? I wanted to judge him till I went back to the hotel and looked in the mirror saw the change on the counter. Stunning, isn't it? How easy it is to bask in the grace of God ourselves, but withhold a few drops of it for others. After all, what they did is a lot worse than what I did you know why that's often true, why we think that? Somebody said this to me a while ago. I wish I remembered who I would tell you. The reason is that we judge others by their behavior, but we judge ourselves by our motives. Well, I didn't mean that. Well, if anybody else had been in my shoes, they'd have done the same thing. It really wasn't that bad. We, we, we excuse. We explain what we've done. But with others, we don't give them that slack. You did it. You're guilty. You should pay. No grace for you. Get back in line. But isn't that Calvary just over there? If I can just get to Calvary, Will you help me? Pay me what you owe me. Throw him in prison. Make sure he lands hard on the floor of debtor's prison till the debt is paid. Verse 30, but he refused Instead, he went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The others saw what happened, greatly distressed. And then verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. Now, that's a troublesome passage. 
Does that mean we earn our way into heaven by forgiving others? Is God being legalistic here, vengeful and vindictive? The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright helps us with what is stated here. Listen to what Wright says. Forgiveness isn't like a Christmas present that a kindly grandfather can give to a sulky grandchild even if the grandchild hasn't bought a single gift for anyone else. It isn't like the meal that will be waiting for you back home even if you fail to buy a cheese sandwich and a cup of tea for a tramp on the street. It's a different sort of thing altogether. Forgiveness is more like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take in any more yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. Whatever the spiritual, moral, and emotional equivalent of the lungs may be, we sometimes say the heart, but that, of course, is a metaphor as well, it's either open or closed. If it's open, able and willing to forgive others, it will also be open to receive God's love and forgiveness. But if it's locked up to the one, it will be locked up to the other. This is a hard lesson to learn in our thinking and in our acting. In other words, if you inhale the grace of God and you hold that, you don't allow any of that to escape from you onto others. Your spiritual life will be short-lived. They will not receive what you could give and you will die choked on what you should have shared. Because we inhale God's grace and then we exhale it onto others. That's the economy of the spiritual life. Jesus just said, stating a simple truth. If you don't exhale, if you don't give, you won't get any more. Not because God doesn't have it, but because you won't be able to take it. So forgive. So I got to thinking, how would we summarize the lesson of this parable? And I thought of a country song sung by Reba McIntyre. I read just a bit of the lyrics. A smile's not a smile until it wrinkles your face. A bell's not a bell without ringing. A home's not a home when there's nobody there. A song's not a song without singing. Love isn't love till you give it away. Love isn't love till it's free. The love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. With apologies to Reba, could I borrow that line and adapt it and say that what Jesus is saying in this parable is simply this, grace isn't grace unless you give it away. Grace isn't grace unless you give it away. The man showed that his heart had not been touched or changed by the grace of God. Showed that what he had been forgiven had not been integrated into the fabric of who he was. He just ran out glad to be done with the debt, but it had made no change in him. Because had it been integrated into his being, the most natural thing would have been to recognize grace isn't grace, unless it's given away.
doesn't mean it would be easy. But there would be that recognition once my heart has been touched, once my soul has been changed. I have to share this. In light of what I was just forgiven, are you kidding me? That's pennies. Man, don't mention that ever again. You don't owe me a thing. I'm rich. Because grace isn't grace unless you give it away. So I have a question for you. Is there anyone in your life, anyone in your heart, in your mind, in your experience or background whom you have not forgiven? It was back in August of 2011. Camp meeting season here. I was in a meeting with a small group planning what we were going to do for camp meeting that year. The, the theme was going to be forgiveness. Small group, we were planning what to do, and I, I said to them, what I would really like to do on that first Sabbath of camp meeting is I'd like to stand up before our community and say, I know you may not yet be ready to forgive that person in your life. You may not be ready yet, but would you at least do this? Would you commit to, over the next five weeks, just journeying through this forgiveness theme? We'll try together to understand more about what it is and what it isn't. We'll try to take in the reality of the grandeur of God's grace. Just pray about it. Maybe by the end, maybe, maybe God will have done something. So I was telling this group, that's what I'd like to do. And in the middle of my statement, a face came to mind, just suddenly and clearly. Clear as a bell. It, it stopped me mid-sentence. It was a face from many years ago in my life of someone who had deeply injured, not me, but someone to whom I'm very close. You know how sometimes we're even more protective of those people we're close to than even of ourselves? It had angered me deeply. And that face came to mind. And in that moment, I realized I have not forgiven that person. So preacher, practice what you preach. Physician, heal yourself. Take a dose of your own medicine. It wasn't joyfully, it was a bit reluctantly, but I decided I'm going to do what I'm asking my community, my family, to do. And so I began praying about that, praying about that person, about that reality in my own life and heart, and studied and preached. I told a story one week. It was a simple story. I was struck later in thinking back of different things that people had said throughout the five weeks of camp meeting, that that story garnered more comments, positive comments, than any other element of any sermon. And I thought it was such a simple story. It was the story of Corey Tin Boom. You remember Corey Tin Boom, the Holocaust survivor? Corey tells about a time when she was struggling to forgive someone, some injury they had caused to her. She had actually told the person, I forgive you, but she said it was still roiling in my heart, stewing in my gut. I was, I was awake at night, couldn't sleep. I was thinking about it during the day, day after day like this. A couple of weeks went by like this, and I thought, I've got to get help with this. She went and talked to her Lutheran pastor. She said that her pastor listened. 
And then he took her over to the, to the window in the church, and he pointed out and said, Corey, look up there. You see that bell tower at the front of our church? It has a bell in it. When it's time for worship, the sexton will go in and he'll grab that bell and begin to pull on it and to pull on it. And that clapper inside smashes against the walls of the bell and it echoes all through our village. People know it's time to come to worship. When the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell doesn't stop ringing. It continues to clang, depending how hard he's been pulling on the rope for a while. But if you listen, there will, after a period of time, finally come a moment when it dings for the last time. All is quiet. And he said, Corey, that's the way it is with forgiveness. When you said, I forgive you to that person, you release the rope. But it doesn't stop ringing. It will come back. And there may be many times where you will have to remind yourself, I forgave that, when you will have to pray, God, give me your grace to remind me. That's forgiven. And people told me, that was a great help to me. Didn't particularly surprise me. Because the enduring lesson I learned in that series was this. Often, sometimes, I don't know how often, forgiveness is not an act, but a process. Not an act, but a process. And that bell may continue to clang. You'll have to make decisions. Will I come before God and say, God, give me the grace, give me the strength. I've forgiven that. I give it to you again. There are people whom you may forgive, whom you will not allow back into your life because of their toxic nature. But you can still forgive. So it was a couple of years later. Service was about to begin. I ducked out the door, headed into the lobby, and when the door opened, I was going out. I almost ran into someone. I said, excuse me, step back to let them come in. And they just stood there. And I, I looked at them in the face and thought, that, that face is familiar. And they said, Randy. And I looked again said, oh, my goodness. It was that person. And we embraced and talked. In fact, after second service, we talked and ate. Remember, Anita? And somehow, the miracle of God's grace was such that at the end of the day, I thought, I didn't feel one shred of ill will. And that wasn't me, folks, by any stretch. So I ask you, is there a face? Is there a story? Is there a pain? First, go to Calvary. Because God's grace will submerge you in its goodness. 
And then make a choice. God, I'm going to let that rope go. I'm going to stop pulling on it. I don't know how long it will continue to ring, but I'm going to need your grace and a lot of it. But that's my choice to say you're forgiven. Because grace isn't grace unless it's given away. God of grace, there really are no words to express the profound gratitude for the abundance of your grace in our lives. But Lord, there are words, and they are words like please and help and empower us when we think about extending that grace to others. Might we of all people be known as people who extend grace, change our marriages, our families, our parenting, our communities, our places of work, all of our relationships because of your grace. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.